So, Jonah, chapter 1 to verse 17, 1 to 17. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his own God, and they threw cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone below deck, where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. The captain went to him and said, "'How can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us, so that we will not perish.' Then the soldiers, the sailors said to each other, Come, let us cast lots to find out who is responsible for this calamity. They cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. So they asked him, Tell us, who is responsible for making all this trouble for us? What kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? He answered, I am a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven. Who made the sea and the dry land. This terrified them, and they asked, What have you done? They knew he was running away from the Lord, because he had already told them so. The sea was getting rougher and rougher, so they asked him, What shall we do to you to make the sea calm down for us? Pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied, and it will become calm. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Instead, the men did their best to row back to land, but they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. Then they cried out to the Lord, Please, Lord, do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man, for you, Lord, have done as you pleased. Then they took Jonah and threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. At this, the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. Now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. That was Jonah. We're going to go to Mark, chapter 4 now. Uh, Mark's second book of the New Testament. Mark, chapter 4, verses 35 to 41. That day, when evening came, he said to his disciples, Let us go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat. There were also other boats with him. A furious squall came up, and the waves broke over the boat, so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? He got up rebuked the wind and said to the waves, quiet, be still. And the wind died down and it was completely calm. He said to his disciples, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? They were terrified and asked each other, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. It was very encouraging that we prayed for the homeless just a few moments ago. Can I encourage you in your prayers for the homeless to pray for Eddie. 
Uh, Eddie is the rough sleeper who is sort of in our area. He's a regular at our 4.30 service, um, and we have lots of opportunities to speak to him and to care for him. So as you think of that problem generally, let me put a a name and a a face to it. You can pray for for Eddie, who we see regularly. But right now, let's uh, pray that God might give us understanding of his word as we uh, turn our, our hearts and our minds to the book of Jonah. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, your ways are higher than our ways. Your thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And yet your word never fails to do what you send it out to do. And so, Lord, we pray, may your word do its work in our hearts tonight. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. There is no doubt to me that the book of Jonah is one of the greatest stories in the whole world. Even the people who haven't read the Bible, they they know the story of Jonah. It's just one of those stories that's kind of made its way into the culture Uh, And part of that is because it's just one of those great ripping yarns. You know, man runs away from God and is rescued from a storm by being swallowed by a giant fish. I mean, how can you not remember that story? Uh, It's one of those stories you really only have to hear once and you remember it forever. Uh, And it's one of those stories that as a very little boy, I remember hearing uh, from my parents and it just kind of stuck in my brain and has stayed there forever along with Haman being hung on his own gallows and Ehud, the left-handed swordsman. They were the other ones I really remember from a very young age. But a lot of people presume that it's just that, a story. They imagine that it's in the realm of fairy tales and fables and tall stories that people tell down at the pub after a few too many drinks. Anything other than history. And yet history is what it is. And this mistake is made by plenty of people who actually ought to know better, Bible scholars and academics and even preachers. Uh, Many people go to quite some length to say to us that there's things in Jonah that ought not to be taken too literally. Uh, Some would say that the whole storm being calmed is just uh, a bit too far-fetched. There's arguments about whether or not the city of of Nineveh, such a great city, could be properly visited in three days, as it suggests in Jonah 3 verse 3. But of course, what people find hardest to swallow, if you'll forgive the pun, is the whole bit about Jonah being gobbled up by a giant fish and surviving in its stomach for three days. And so, believe it or not, one commentator even goes so far as to suggest that actually what happened was that Jonah recovered from his sea ordeal by going to a hotel called the Big Fish for three days and three nights. But of course, these sorts of arguments, they come from people who forget how powerful God is and that this is his world. And that when you know the God who has made the universe and indeed raised Jesus Christ from the dead, then accepting Jonah as history is but a small thing. And what's more, there's every reason to believe that this is exactly how Jonah is meant to be read. For when we hear in 1 verse 1 that the word of the Lord has come to Jonah, son of Amittai, you might notice you've probably even got a little footnote there in your Bible. Because this is not the first time we've heard of Jonah, son of Amittai. Back in 2 Kings chapter 14 verse 25, we also hear of Jonah, son of Amittai, that he is a prophet in the time of King Jeroboam II. And so we know where and when he is. Jonah is in Israel and he's in the the early part of the 8th century. King Jeroboam II ruled from 793 BC to 753 BC. So Jonah is is somewhere in that time. Uh, And it is also a time when who is the great superpower of the day? Well, it was the wicked empire of Assyria. 
And what's the capital of Assyria? Well, none other than the city of Nineveh. There is nothing fishy about this story at all. Well, apart from the fish bit. But, you know, this, is, this tale is history. Uh, people make a mistake when they see it as some sort of parable or morality tale. But people, I think, also make a mistake, it seems to me, when they imagine that this is a story about a man and a giant fish. Because this historical story, like all the historical stories of the Bible, is in fact a story about God. And I hope that after the next four weeks in the book of Jonah, you'll come to realise just how much it has to teach us about our God. So let's begin with Jonah 1. There are three things in Jonah chapter 1 that God sends, and they frame the story nicely. Uh, First of all, the Lord sends his word in verses 1 to 3. And then secondly, the Lord sends his storm in verses 4 to 15. And then lastly, the Lord does send a fish in verse 17, but actually, I think in verses 16 and 17, the Lord sends his mercy. And you can see it up on the screen there, a bit of an outline for those of you who like to take notes. And look, I promise that's the last of the puns, okay? But it's Jonah, you had to let me have a couple, okay? (laughs) I had a lot more in the first draft of this sermon, I must confess. (laughs) Anyway, first of all, the Lord sends his word. Uh, In verse 2, we see God commanding Jonah to go. Uh, The word of the Lord has come to him and now it's time for Jonah to go and do as the Lord says. And what's surprising, of course, is who Jonah is to go to. Uh, Normally when the word of the Lord comes to one of God's prophets, they're being sent to Israel, they're being sent to the Jews, to to God's (coughs) chosen people. And presumably that has been Jonah's ministry so far. But this time when the Lord sends his word, Jonah is sent to Nineveh. Now he's being told to to leave the land of Israel and go to a a foreign land and to a foreign people. And it's the sort of foreigners that perhaps Jonah feared or even counted as enemies. Either way, Jonah doesn't like this idea very much. And so God says go and he goes all right. He goes in the complete opposite direction. Uh, He goes straight to the Israelite town of Joppa in verse 3, which is a port town. And he, he boards a ship that's headed for Tarshish which is probably somewhere in Spain. And so it's the complete opposite direction from Nineveh. It's nowhere near where God wants him to be. At this point, of course, we can only speculate about, you know, what's going on in Jonah's head as he does all of this. Perhaps he's motivated by fear, or perhaps he's just being downright disobedient, or perhaps this is some sort of a protest. But whatever the case, the end of verse 3 tells us what Jonah was seeking to do. Jonah is fleeing from God. He is running away from the Lord. That's how Jonah responds when the word of the Lord comes to him. So how will God respond to Jonah's response? And that is when, in verse 4, God sends his storm. And it's a pretty violent storm as well in verse 4. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. Uh, Everything that God does in Jonah 1 is is kind of supersized, you know. Uh, There is a great huge wind here in verse 4. And then in verse 17, there is a great huge fish. And it's actually the same word in the Hebrew that describes both things. And the implication being, I think, that the word of the Lord that God sends must also be great huge, uh, even though we're not going to see that until we reach chapter 3. But notice the reactions of the sailor 
the sailors and the reaction of Jonah to this storm that God sends because they couldn't be more different, could they? Verse 5 tells us that the sailors were afraid and so they prayed to their gods for help. And then they start throwing the cargo overboard to, to lighten the ship. Their reaction is the sensible terror of seasoned sailors. But Jonah's reaction is very different, isn't it? He, Jonah's apathetic at best. He's not interested at all in prayer. In fact, Jonah is below decks fast asleep during all of this. So the ship captain goes down to Jonah to wake him up and asks him, you know, can you please pray to your God too? Maybe he will have mercy upon us and spare us. Uh, Meanwhile, above decks, the sailors have cast lots in order to work out who has brought this this danger upon them. I don't have any idea how they would have cast lots in the middle of a storm, but they do, and the lot falls on Jonah. And so as Jonah kind of emerges from below decks, rubbing sleep from his eyes, uh, beginning to take everything that's going on in, the sailors pepper him with questions in verse 9. Tell us, who is responsible for making all this trouble for us? What kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? And it's then that Jonah confesses in verse 10. He says, I'm a Hebrew and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. That's a staggering way to describe God, isn't it? And it's a staggering way of showing us just how stupid Jonah is. In fact, in verse 10, you can almost see the, the, the gears shifting and working in the minds of the sailors as, as they say to him, you know, you did what? You're, you're running away from the God of heaven who, who made the sea and the dry land by getting on a boat? Getting on our boat? Are you insane? You know, verse 10 tells us that they already knew that Jonah was running away from the Lord. Uh, But that phrase there, the Lord behind that, that that word Lord all in capitals behind that is, of course, the covenant name of God, Yahweh, the name by which his people knew him. And so for all the sailors knew that, that Jonah was just running away from a bloke called Yahweh. Perhaps, you know, they thought maybe he owed him money or something. But now Jonah reveals that this Yahweh is the Lord God. And that's who he's running away from. And this is a major revelation that shows us Jonah's heart. Jonah knows who this God is. Jonah is not ignorant. Jonah knows that God could follow him wherever he flees, be it by land or sea. But he tries to run away anyway. He's acting completely inconsistently with what he knows to be true. And of course, Jonah's not the only one to fall into that trap, is he? At this point, in all of his pig-headed stupidity, I find Jonah to be very human and very relatable. And I see a lot of Jonah in me. How often have I known exactly what God wants me to do in a situation and I just haven't done it? And I've thought to myself, perhaps God won't notice me or, or perhaps he'll forget about me or, or perhaps I can run away from him in my petty rebellion or perhaps if I just kind of stick my fingers in my ear and close my eyes, everything will work out for the best. Jonah is as foolish as he is relatable. Now at this point in the story, in verse 11, the storm's getting worse. 
The sailors don't know what to do. They know it's somehow Jonah's fault, so they ask him whether he has any suggestions. And Jonah says that you should do with me what you did to the cargo. Throw me overboard. Uh, But notice, it's interesting. In verse 12, Jonah doesn't do the obvious thing. You know, Jonah doesn't turn to the sailors and say, yes, you're right, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll I'll get down on my knees and and I'll pray to my God and I'll ask him to forgive me for this stupidity of running away and maybe he will show mercy maybe he will show his love and and maybe you know he's reminded me of just how foolish it is to run from the word of God yet Jonah doesn't do anything like that Jonah is either too scared or too angry or too whatever he is to repent in fact he would rather risk his life in the water than apologize to God and I've got to admit if I was one of the sailors right there right then I would have turfed Jonah overboard without a second thought. But actually, that's not what the sailors do. Uh, Verse 13, even though they've caused him so much trouble, the first thing they try and do is see if they can't row to shore. Uh, But it's in vain. God's storm is much stronger than their rowing. And so in the end, they reluctantly do as Jonah has suggested. But not before praying to Jonah's God. The prayer that they pray in verse 14 is a kind of washing their hands of the whole thing. Uh, They're effectively saying to God, look, we don't know whether this guy is guilty or innocent, which I think is a very uh, generous assumption, considering that Jonah has already admitted that he's guilty. But we've done all we could and we really don't feel like you've left us with any choice, which is true. God hasn't left them with any choice. And so they throw him overboard and immediately... The storm ceases. But it is fascinating. I can't help but think that this pagan sailor is, they've shown more nobility and more kindness than this wayward prophet of God ever deserved. At the start of the chapter, these pagan sailors, they were praying to their pagan gods. But right now here at the end, they're all praying together to the one God the one true God, to Jonah's God. And they're even calling him by name. Twice in verse 14, as they pray to him, do they call him Yahweh, what only the Israelites called him. And then twice again in verse 16, as they make sacrifices to to God and as they make vows to God, again, they call him Yahweh. Something something happens in the lives of these sailors in Jonah chapter 1. Jonah has run away from God, but in this crisis, these sailors, they've run towards God. They've come to know something of the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. And they know enough to fear him. Back in verse 5, the sailors greatly feared the storm. And then in verse 10, they were terrified of being on the same boat as Jonah. But now here in verse 16, what is it they fear? Who is it that they fear? Well, it is the Lord they fear and they make their sacrifices too. They're fearful in a whole new way. And what's really surprising about that is actually Jonah in verse 9 also uses the word fear. Uh, It gets translated as worship, but literally in verse 9 what Jonah says is, I fear the Lord the God of heaven, the one who made the sea and the dry land. And so isn't it fascinating, isn't it interesting, at the start of the chapter, 
God sends his word to the pagan city of Nineveh. And even though God's word has not yet reached that great city, it has reached this little group of pagan sailors. And it has dramatically changed them. And then the chapter ends in verse 17. A little postscript about Jonah. Now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. The Lord who sent Jonah to Nineveh, the Lord who sent the storm to rein in his runaway prophet, is the same Lord who now sends a rescuer. Now sends not a hotel called the fish, but an actual fish to swallow Jonah out of the sea. For all his stubbornness and rebelliousness and stupidity, God is merciful to Jonah just as he's been merciful to the sailors too. And I do think that's what these last two verses of this chapter are about and what they have in common, the mercy of God. God sent his mercy to the sailors by revealing himself to them. And God sends his mercy to Jonah in the form of a giant fish. And so I do think that it is that mercy of God That should be the thing we take away out of Jonah chapter 1. I certainly don't want to suggest that we should read Jonah chapter 1 as a a textbook of what to do if we ever find ourselves in rough seas. So no matter how choppy the water gets on your way to Rotnest, please don't throw yourself overboard. Uh, That's not what we should do at all. Uh, And likewise, I don't want to take it metaphorically either. I don't want to uh, ask you big existential questions about the storms in your life that might be God calling you back to him. But because what we do have in here in Jonah 1 is two contrasting responses to God and it's obvious, isn't it, which one is better? Jonah resists the will of God, runs away from God, refuses to do as God says for him to do. And yet on the other hand are the sailors who have a proper fear of God by the end of the chapter. You know, Jonah... Jonah knows what God wants him to do, he just doesn't do it. And as I said, I think this makes Jonah very relatable. Jonah reminds me of me. And I don't think I'm the only person who would be willing to admit that here today. I mean, who of us could say that there's never been a time where we've known clearly what God wants us to do and yet we haven't do it? And who of us could say that there's never been a time when we've known who God really is and yet we've treated him as someone much less important? And who of us here could say that there's never been a time where we have not run away from God and from his loving rule of our life? We, like Jonah, are prone to resist the will of God, prone to run from him when instead we ought to fear God like the sailors feared him. We are prone to be hearers of God's word, but not to be doers, which is the very thing that James chapter 1, verse 22 warns against. And so let me remind you, when the scriptures urge us to praise God, we ought to not just hear that, but actually lift up our voices in praise of the one who has saved us. And when the scriptures urge us to be joyful, 
We ought to not just hear that, but actually stop making our excuses and choose to find our happiness in him. And when the scriptures urge us to flee from greed, we ought not just to hear that, but pray that God would deliver us from our love of money and our endless pursuit of things and lead us to a life that values people more than possessions and the riches of God more than the riches of this world. And when the scriptures urge us to sexual purity, we ought not just to hear that, but to train our minds and our hearts to think differently. And we ought to stop placing ourselves in the path of temptation. And when the scriptures urge us to forgive, then we ought not just to hear that, but to take the grudge that we have against others and to hurl it away from us, just as God has taken our sin that he held against us and hurled it away from him as far as the east is from the west. We must not be like Jonah who heard but did not obey. We must be like the sailors who fearfully repented of that kind of foolishness. And we ought to pray that God would help us to be those who do what he says. For the truth is, if all Jonah chapter 1 says to us is that we ought to make more effort in our Christian lives, then that's exhausting. We'll quickly tire of that. And, you know, just do better is never an application that should come out of a Christian sermon. It should never be the main message of the gospel of grace and of forgiveness that began at the cross. And so Jonah 1, it's not just about how we ought to respond rightly to God. It's also an invitation to know that God better. To understand him, to to relate to him, to even draw near to him. Because it is our knowledge of God that will help us to fear him and to respond to him rightly. I mean, that's easy to overlook, isn't it? Uh, Let me say it again, you know, it, it is our knowledge of God that will help us to fear him and to respond to him rightly as we ought. Our response to God is exactly that. It, it's a response. It's a reaction to who he is and what he has done. And so the better that we know who he is and what he has done, then the easier it will be to hear him, to fear him and to respond to him as he wants And so what does this chapter tell us about God? Well, it tells us about his lordship. God sent his word. God sent his storm. God sent the fish that rescued Jonah. God governed the casting of lots that the sailors did. It was God's strength that proved greater than the muscle of the rowing sailors. And it was that same strength that instantly calmed the storm the minute the Jonah was thrown overboard. The fingerprints of God's sovereignty, they're, they're all over this chapter. He is who Jonah confessed him to be. He is the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry lands. And this means that resisting him is not only foolish, it's futile. You can try resisting God, but at the end of the day, you'll always be like those sailors trying to row their way back to dry land. They rowed with all their might, but they never moved an inch. And as Martin Luther once famously wrote, not only the ship, but the whole world became too small for Jonah. He found no nook or corner in all of creation where he could crawl to escape from God. 
And what we see here is exactly what the disciples of Jesus discovered when they found themselves in a very similar situation hundreds of years later. We read about that in Mark 4. They too found themselves in a storm. They too were afraid, despite themselves being experienced sailors. But in that case, the Lord was with them in the boat. In fact, it was the Lord who was the one who was asleep. And when they went to him and and spoke to him, and when he woke up, it was the Lord Jesus who stilled the storm with a word. And it's then that the disciples found that their earlier fear was swept away by a wave of new fear. Fear of the one who could do such a thing. Who is this man that even the wind and the waves obey him? And if you're here today and you're someone who's, who's thinking about the Christian faith, you know, dipping your toe in the water, so to speak, then you need to know that The Lord of Jonah 1 is the Lord of Mark 4. That Jesus Christ is God incarnate. That he was there with his father when the heavens were made and the sea and the dry land. And as you get to know him, you will be terrified. His power and his authority are astonishing. But what the disciples learned that day is what Jonah 1 reminds us of as well. And that is the God who is the Lord does not exercise his immense power with oppression, but with compassion. The one who is terrifyingly Lord is also the one who is wonderfully merciful. And that tempers and it qualifies our fear of him. It means we do not fear him as we would fear a tyrant, someone with great power who might wield it to hurt or destroy us but instead we fear him perhaps as a a little child who fears their father's disappointment yes but never doubts their father's love in Jonah 1 we always see God's lordship side by side with his mercy his mercy to Jonah when God sends the fish to rescue him from the sea At that moment, we're reminded that God is merciful to sinners. Even to those who flee from him. Even to those who resist his will. Even to those who have disobeyed him. God is merciful to even the worst of sinners. And that's ultimately true because the one who calmed the storm in Mark chapter 4 is the same one who went willingly to a hill outside Jerusalem. To lay down his life. And Jesus did that so that forgiveness of sins might, like a wave in a storm, come crashing over our world and into our lives as a torrent of cleansing love and healing mercy. How wonderful it is to know that our sins are forgiven. How wonderful it is to know that, that even as we struggle in the Christian life, even as we continue to disappoint God, even as we continue to run away from him, Jesus continues to run towards us and to embrace us and to bring us home. 
But of course, the other surprise is the mercy that God shows the sailors. God looks down on these Gentiles worshipping their various gods and he loves them too. He reveals themselves to, he, to them as well. They were miles away from God at the start of the chapter, but here at the very end, they're no longer ignorant of his lordship, but they embrace it. They're no longer foreign to the mercy of God, but they're recipients of it. And so by the end, they are worshipping like the Israelites did on their very best of days. And those who were excluded are now suddenly included in both the mercy and the lordship of Jesus. And it makes you wonder, doesn't it, what might the word of the Lord do when it finally does reach Nineveh? And it makes you wonder, what might the word of the Lord do if it was to reach our friends or our our family members or those we work with or go to university with or who are our neighbours? What might the word of the Lord do then? But of course, we are evidence of what the word of the Lord might do, aren't we? Because in a room like this, I take it that there's, there's very few people here who are Jewish. There's very few people here who are one of those ancient people that God chose. We are in the majority. We're Gentiles. We're non-Jews. We were those who, who were miles away from God at the start, ignorant of his lordship and having no hope of enjoying the blessings of his mercy. Those who were excluded by birth and yet now suddenly we are included in both the mercy and the lordship of God through our Saviour Jesus Christ. We would have had no chance of even knowing the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land if Jesus had not flung open the doors to God's kingdom so wide that anyone is welcome in. We who were once far away have now been brought near by the blood that Jesus Christ shed on that hill outside Jerusalem. In the end, Jonah 1 is about responding rightly to God. But it's more about knowing the one that we ought to respond rightly to. Jonah 1 is about fearing God, but it's more about the one that we ought to fear, knowing that he is a God of mercy and of love, and of compassion, and of kindness. Jonah 1 is about the foolishness of running away from God. But not because you can't ever escape him, even though that is true. But because there isn't any reason to escape him. See, the more that you know God, the less you want to flee from him. When we resist God's will, yes, we do disappoint God, that is true. But perhaps more significantly, we rob ourselves. Because running away from God is foolish. The further we run from him, the further we are from all that we need, from all that we crave, and from all that he freely gives us in his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus. We thank you for his great power and mercy, for his compassionate reign of our worlds, and even his rule of us. 
Thank you for his kindness that he has thrown open the doors of your kingdom to even Gentiles like us and welcomed many in. Thank you for his death on the cross and for the mercy that flows to us as you forgive our sins. Father, we ask tonight that you would write these things on our heart. Write them deep, Lord. Write them in such a way that it would seem a nonsense to us to ever resist your will or, or want to run away from you. Instead, Lord, we pray that we might embrace you and gladly obey you. Not just hearing your words, but wanting to do as it says. And we pray it in the name of Jesus, our Saviour and our Lord. Amen.